Father in heaven, uh, Lord, as we bow before you this morning, we are praying especially that you will cleanse our minds and hearts from anything that would prevent the placement of your truth within us. I pray, Lord, that we can be completely repaired by, uh, prepared by your spirit and your grace to receive the things you need to say. Uh, be with me, forgive my sins. I pray, Lord, that you will speak and it's your voice we will hear. I ask, Lord, as a result of our time, we will better understand what our purpose in life is and how to live in a way that will bring glory to your name, that we can truly worship you. And it's in that name we pray. Amen. Amen. Now, I'd like to preface uh, everything I'm going to say, and I've got a lot to say. By first uh, issuing a disclaimer, I do not feel worthy. Uh, I'm not saying that through some false humility. I really don't. Um, to even talk about this subject. Because this is the most important subject. Is worship. The great controversy is about worship. The reason the devil rebelled is because of worship. The reason you are created is for worship. And so when we talk about the purpose of worship, we really are walking on holy ground. Uh, but we've got this distorted, puny idea in Christian churches of what worship is. We think worship is all, oh, that's, the, that's the time when the pastors walk out on the platform and they go through their, their ritual and antics. And the preacher preaches, we sing the closing hymn, and we have then worshipped. That's, that's a handicapped idea of what worship is. That's not worship. And when I went to a charismatic church, the idea of worship was the more exuberant and rambunctious we became, the better our worship was. And that, that notion's even infecting some Adventist churches. That's not worship. That's not what God is talking about. Now, that's not to say there are not people that go to church Sabbath morning when the ministers march out, or that they even go to a charismatic church that don't engage in genuine worship. I'm not questioning that, but I'm saying it is so much more, it is so much bigger than that, and there are so many counterfeits. If worship is true, if it's real, if it's something that God wants from us, if you were the devil, would you create a counterfeit for it? Does the devil have a counterfeit Sabbath? Is there a counterfeit for the gift of tongues? Is there a counterfeit for baptisms? Counterfeit Holy Spirit? Are there lots of counterfeit Christs and counterfeit gods? Then why would it surprise us there, there would be counterfeit worship? Matter of fact, there are so many counterfeits for true, true worship that it's almost hard to distinguish the genuine. It's like if you want to hide a diamond, a good place to do that is in a mountain of broken glass. It looks like it sparkles, you know, but it won't stand up to the test. I should probably begin by just reviewing a few verses for you here. I've got some of this on my laptop, and then I'll be looking at some stories with you out of the Bible, and I need to make sure I stop on time. Turn, please, with me to Matthew chapter 4, verse 8. Speaking of the temptation of Christ in the wilderness, those three temptations. And again, the devil took him up, last temptation, to an exceeding high mountain. Matthew 4, verse 8. 
And he showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said, all these things I will give you. Now, isn't that why Jesus came? He came into the world to save the world. And here the devil shows him all the kingdoms of the world, all the centers of the peoples, of the populations. He said, look, here's the world and all the people of the world, and I'm willing to give it to you on a silver platter. You don't need to die for it. I will give it to you. You know, the devil says that he's the prince of this world. Jesus even referred to him as that one time, because basically the devil kidnapped this world. He says, I'll give it to you. If you will just fall down and worship me. The whole great controversy sprang out of perverted worship. Satan, Lucifer, wanted the worship that belongs to God. And so here he is. He wanted God's position. He says, look, all you've got to do is worship me. And I'll give it all to you. And you can do whatever you want with the human race as long as I'm on top and you serve me. And Jesus, without hesitating, responded, quoting scripture again. By the way, all three times Jesus met the temptations of the devil, he quoted from Deuteronomy. Away with you, Satan, for it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. You know, the first four commandments deal with worship. Actually, all of them do. But the first four, more specifically, are talking about God expects exclusive worship, that uh, we're not to distort that worship, you know, how you're to worship him, not idols. And I suppose one reason that God is offended by the idolatry is the very idea that you can manipulate and put God in time and space to be some little plastic figurine on your dashboard or even a two-dimensional picture on the wall, an icon, is really an insult to the ever-present God. It's like, I'm going to put God here. And it, idolatry really uh, belittles God. And so it's an insult. Um, talks about worshiping who, which God? What's his name? Don't take his name in vain. And when to worship him. And to reserve your life and your time for him. And so the first four commandments all involve worship. Uh, Seventh-day Adventists, if there's a people out there that should understand something about worship, it should be us. Because in the three angels' messages, Revelation 14, you want to go there real quick? This is our mandate, our marching orders for the world right now, is encapsulated in these final messages before the beast activates his last plan. Revelation 14, 6. Then I saw another angel flying in the midst of heaven, having the everlasting gospel to preach to those who dwell on the earth. To every nation, tribe, and tongue. We've got a message that's to go to the world and people. Saying with a loud voice, fear God, revere God, honor God, and give glory to him for the hour of his judgment has come and worship him. Now, why would God say worship him? You think, isn't that understood? That's because people are worshiping other things. You know, one reason God gives us the Ten Commandments is because they don't come naturally. Why would God say, uh, you know, don't steal, except that people want to take something from someone else? And he says, remember the Sabbath day. Why would he tell us to remember something if we had no problem remembering it? But we have problems remembering it. And so when he says, worship God, 
fear him, it's because we fear everything else. Who was it? Wesley that said, he that fears God fears nothing else. He that does not fear God fears everything else. And worship him that made the heaven and the earth and the sea and the springs of waters. And that, of course, is a, a quote that is drawn almost exactly from the fourth commandment. So I especially wanted to focus on that first angel's message there. It, it's all about what? Before you get into the second and third angel's message, it points to God. It says, worship him. What does the devil want? Worship me. And so what's the big battle revolve over? Who do you worship? Now, is it possible that there are some people who are worshiping the devil and they don't even know it? Now I'll ask another question. Is it possible there's some people that are worshiping God and they don't know it? Well, possibly. Are, are there people maybe in some countries that haven't been exposed to the gospel, but they see the creator and the things that he's made, like it says in Romans, and they're just in awe of this God, whoever he is. They don't really know him, but they, they uh, you know, worship him in their hearts. And God has his people in these other nations that have this attitude about God that really they don't know who he is. So the big issue is, who do you worship? And, you know, I think even in the Seventh-day Adventist church, we're being torn over this issue. Who to worship and how to worship and when to worship. And, and uh, the devil is introducing some counterfeits for the genuine. Now, it probably would be a good idea at this point to give a definition for worship. And this is a, a condensed definition I've sort of amalgamated between uh, Merriam-Webster and American Heritage Dictionary. Worship, the reverent love, adoration, honor, and devotion accorded a supernatural power, an idol or a sacred object. B, to regard with great or extravagant respect. <coughs> C, the ceremonies, prayers, or other religious forms by which this love and honor is expressed. And it comes from the old English word, worth-ship. So when we worship God, we are talking about what his worth is. Now, what is, what is the beast going to try and do in the last days? He compels the whole world, rich and poor, free and bond. Let's read that. Revelation 13, verse 12. I'm not going to be able to read all this, but I just want to give you some bookends in the Bible to contextualize what we're talking about. And he exercises all the authority of the first beast in his presence, and he causes the earth, compels, forces, the earth and those who dwell in it to worship the first beast whose deadly wound was healed. Forced to worship. Go to verse 15, same chapter, Revelation 13, 15. And he was granted power to give breath to the image of the beast, that the image of the beast should both speak and cause as many as would not worship the image of the beast should be killed. Compelled worship. Now, those who are worshiping the, the beast and the image in the last days, do they know that they're worshiping a beast? Not necessarily. Are they going to think they're worshiping God? John 16, verse 2, Jesus said, they'll put you out of the synagogues. Yes, the time is coming, future tense, that whoever kills you will think he offers God service. 
Did Paul really think he was worshiping God when he killed Stephen? Yeah, he thought this is what God wants. Now, that ought to scare you a little bit. That means in the last days there'll be people who sincerely think they're worshiping God, they're really worshiping the devil, and they don't know the difference. So we need to know, what is the difference between the two? How can we know that? Isn't it interesting that in the last days, there's going to be two groups that are going to worship. Everybody in the world is going to be polarized into one of two groups. One group is going to have the seal of God and worship God. Correct? And the other group is going to worship the beast and his image. The group who worships wrong is going to seek to kill the group who worships right. So what's the big issue in the last days? Who and how do you worship? Where did the first murder come from in the Bible? You go to Genesis chapter 4, verse 1. Now Adam knew his wife Eve, and she conceived and bore Cain, and said, I've acquired a man from the Lord. This is Genesis 4, verse 2 now. And she bore again, this time his brother Abel. Now Abel was a keeper of sheep, but Cain was a tiller of the ground. And in the process of time, some years went by, it came to pass that Cain brought an offering of the fruit of the ground to the Lord. Now they've grown up, they're old enough to make their own offerings. And uh, they knew about God. I mean, they're, they're first generation church members. Uh, you know, they could still see the garden, they could still see the Shekinah glory. I guess they're second generation, I should say. But, I mean, here they're talking to parents that were created to be eternal. Can you imagine that? Having a father with no belly button? <laughs> and in the process of time, it came to pass that Cain brought an offering of the fruit of the ground. Now, what Cain brought was the result of his work. <coughs> there was no shedding of blood. And God had made it very clear that without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. But Cain, for whatever reason, he thought, you know, this is sort of a, uh, a grisly process that we need to go through. After all, it was my mom and dad that sinned. It wasn't me. And maybe they can do it this way. But, you know, we need to modernize things. How do we expect this religion to spread doing it that way? And who's going to want to be part of a church that involves death like that? It's okay to make an offering, but do it as something that smells a little better. And he had a very naturalistic, environmentally friendly way of making an offering. Sound familiar? He said, we need to modernize things a little bit. You know, the, the killing of sheep and the, the burning them on an altar. Let's bring some vegetables. Bring the fruit of the ground. Cain brought an offering of the fruit of the ground to the Lord. Abel also brought of the firstborn of his flock and their fat, as God had prescribed. And the Lord respected Abel in his offering, but he did not respect Cain in his offering. Now, what does that mean? They both had their altars. And back then, as it happened many times in the Bible, when they brought an offering to the Lord, this holy fire would come down. Remember when Moses built the temple? Fire came down to inaugurate that earthly tabernacle? When... Elijah on Mount Carmel, and I'll talk about that later. Fire came down to show approval. When Solomon built his temple, it says in Second um, Chronicles, that the fire of God came down on the altar, and the glory of the Lord filled, and they had this holy fire. They didn't use common fire. So way back there in the Garden of Eden, 
they weren't rubbing sticks together to burn up their sacrifices. They built their altars, they brought it before the Lord, they prayed, and fire came from heaven. Except it only came on Abel's offering. Cain waited and waited, and all he got was fruit flies. And the longer he waited, the more irritated he became. And his brother Abel said, look, Cain, I've been telling you, you know, this is what God wants. God wants you to do it the way he said, that this is a type of the Messiah who's going to spill his blood for us, and, and you don't understand the sacrifice and the loss of life. And, and he, as he labored with his brother, he was right. But instead of Cain humbling himself, have you ever noticed that when you're talking with somebody and you've got the truth and they don't, that one of the reactions is anger? And Cain became furious with his brother, and in a diabolical rage, this was the first real loss of temper. By the way, if you lose your temper, the devil finds it. He took a club or something, and he bludgeoned his brother to death. They both were ostensibly worshiping the same God, doing it different ways. One was right, one was wrong. One was true, one was false. Does it make a difference how you worship? I still don't understand some of these churches. I'm going to get a lot of letters on this. <laughs> that say, you know, the church is growing, but we're going to have two services. We're going to have the traditional worship service, and then we're going to have the more contemporary worship service. Now, those are code words. Some people interpret that code as, we're going to have a boring worship service, and we're going to have an exciting worship service. Other people interpret that code as, we're going to have a reverent worship service, and we're going to have a hootenanny. <laughs> and, and so, I mean, you know, now there are churches that, that I, I want to be careful not to overstate this, because I know there are a lot of churches that have two services, because really they just have outgrown the facilities, and there may be small differences that are not theological issues between the services. You got me? Uh, so I, I don't want to say any church is having two different kinds of services that they're automatically bad. Is that clear to everybody? Yeah. But generally, you know what happens in a lot of these churches. The reason they're having two services is not always because both services are packed. It's because there's a split in the church about worship. And so the pastor, in trying to, you know, like Aaron, he's trying to make everybody happy. He says, well, we'll do two different services. We'll do one your way, and we'll do one your way. We're just trying to accommodate everybody. You can't make everybody happy. Uh, there is a truth about worship. And I do think, you know, I believe in doing new things as long as they don't conflict with biblical principles. It's we should sing new songs. All the old songs that you sing were once new. Isn't that right? So at some point you got to sing a new song and eventually it'll be old if you just wait long enough. <laughs> you know, one of my problems is compared to many who've grown up in the church, I'm still a baby Adventist. Because I'm discovering these songs you guys were singing in the 70s. I'd never heard them before. And so I say, you know, I got this song I, I just love. And I say, oh, yeah, that was no Wedgwood Brothers were doing that. It's, what's that old song? That's a heritage singer classic. From, so I'd never heard it before. It's great, you know. It's a new song for me. It's like when you say, I got a new car. What, what year is it? Oh, it's 1970. It's new for me. And, and so this idea that just because it's a new song, it's bad. That's not biblical. And I hear, you know, some of you who believe in the more conservative traditional worship style, and that's where I fall, you hurt us by taking unbiblical positions. For instance, I, I could name names, but I, I'm not even exactly sure who it was, but some evangelist that was making a big stink about this said, as soon as your church begins to put 
the hymn words on the screen, it has become a celebration church. <laughs> Pardon me, that's kind of dumb. I mean, whether you're reading the words, oh, they do that so you can wave your arms in the air. So Because if you hold a hymnal, it'll keep you from throwing your arms up because it'll wait. And you're, everyone's tempted to go, oh, but you hold your hymnal, it weighs them down. <laughs> Any of you ever heard this before? Oh, yeah. There's nothing wrong with putting the words up on the screen. And by the way, biblically, lifting your hands, if you want to be a Bible Christian, now I don't do it. You know why? Because it makes people stumble. The other reason is the Bible says lift up holy hands, and I never feel quite worthy. So if you're going to lift them, it says lift up holy hands to the Lord. But, you know, Solomon lifted his hands, and there's a number of people in the Bible you can say they lifted your hands. So don't automatically, you know, condemn someone around you that might feel like lifting their hands. And if you're thinking of lifting your hands, I've seen people do it, and they just distract everybody around them. You know, folks are trying to see the screen, and they got their hands like this. <laughs> and so, you know, I'm just, I want to be practical. And I love it when people say amen when I preach. But I've had a couple of brothers and sisters in the church at every word I said there was an amen, and, and it was just like, it, it just it distracted me. You know what I mean? So you, you need to be respectful and reverent as you make these decisions about what's right and wrong in connection with worship. So they both worship, and one kills the other. Um, is that what's going to happen in the last days? If we're going to know how to worship here on earth, I think a good template is how do they worship in heaven? Go to Revelation chapter 5, please. Verse 11. Revelation 5, verse 11. Then I looked and I heard the voice of many angels around the throne and the living creatures and the elders and the number of them was 10,000 times 10,000 and thousands of thousands saying with a loud voice, worthy is the Lamb. Now what does worship mean? Worth-ship. And so when they are saying worthy is the Lamb, they are ascribing worship to the Lamb. Worthy is the Lamb who was slain. Tells why. To receive power and riches and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and blessing. You know, I was preaching on uh, Solomon this last week. And when Solomon was at the zenith of the kingdom, when he was still close to the Lord, it talks about the riches of Solomon and the wisdom of Solomon and the glory of Solomon and the blessings of Solomon. And it, of course, Solomon's the son of David. He's a type of Christ. So I started thinking, boy, this fellow, he had everything and glory, and wisdom, and riches, and blessings, and his kingdom had, was spread wider than any other time in Israel's history. And then I found this verse in Revelation 5. I said, oh, Solomon's a type of Christ, the son of David. There at his zenith of glory. It's like when the angels are worshiping Jesus, the son of David. Worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive power, and glory, and blessings. And every creature which is in heaven, and on the earth, and under the earth, and such as are in the sea, and all that are in them. I heard saying, blessing, and honor, and glory. Even the creatures are worshiping God. Blessing, and honor, and glory, and power be to him who sits on the throne, and to the Lamb forever and ever. And the four living creatures said, Amen. And the twenty-four elders fell down, 
and worshipped him who lives forever and ever. Let me park on that for just a moment. And you know what? I wouldn't mind if you've got a brief question. No sermonettes, remember? I will repeat it because some of you are thinking things that I might be missing regarding the subject of worship. Hold your hand up and if, if it won't distract me too much, I want to stop and, and uh, I'll, I'll try and answer questions. When we pray, posture in prayer, here it says they fell down and worship. You'll find in the Bible that uh, during prayer, uh, God's people do just about everything from falling out flat on the ground like David when he was repenting to kneeling with their faces down, to kneeling with their um, faces raised, to standing. Um, Solomon, when he pronounced the benediction on the people, he stood and he blessed the people. But when he prayed, he knelt and he prayed. Your, your body language says something. And it's just understood, even animals understand that. What does it mean when two dogs meet and one rolls over on his back and exposes his neck? It's an act of submission. I mean, even in the end, if you're stalking gorillas, if you make eye contact with some big old silverback, he's going to charge you because your posture is saying, I think I'm tougher than you are. But if you lower your eyes and you lower your head, they understand that it's an attitude of submission. Even animals understand this. Your body language says something. And that's also true of humans. Have you been talking to someone before and you're trying to make a point and convince them of something? And they go like this. <laughs> I didn't say anything, did I? When but I got to do it for the tape. When they fold their arms and kind of lean back, they're basically saying, here's a little wall here. I'm not so sure I'm taking that in. I'm, gonna, I'm going to build a fort here. And, and so they, you know, and then other people by their body language, you know, I've noticed that when, when people are being interviewed, sometimes they fold their hands and, you know, they listen. And it's like a posture of attentiveness and, and just a lot of things you do with your body say something about, you know, where you're at and what you think. And, I mean, how many of you remember in school the teacher telling you to sit up? You're slouching in your chair. Come on. They don't tell you that anymore? I used to slouch so far that my neck was back on the bottom of the seat. And they said, you know, you just look like you're not interested. You just sit up, pay attention. You know, I look attentive. And um, when we pray and we address God, especially in our formal worship, Boy, I, you know, I can't understand churches now that will go through a whole worship service and they never at any point kneel before God. Um, at some point, you should get on your knees and humble yourself with your posture. And obviously, if, if some people can't kneel, some of our older, you know, that's why some churches will say, as far as possible, <laughs> always cracks me up. I try not to giggle. <laughs> but sometimes I hear the elder or someone on the platform say, Will you please kneel as far as possible? I said, I'm always picture a person just trying to get down as far as they can on the ground. <laughs> but the, you know what they're saying is, some people, because of their age, or they might have some you know hip or knee problems or what you know they they can't kneel down. And while we're talking about, I'm talking about this stuff we think about, okay? If you are an elder in a church, or if you are leading a prayer up front. Keep in mind when you are kneeling to pray, especially if any of you are in ministry, there are some people out there that are happy to kneel before God, but it hurts them. Don't keep them on their knees five minutes while you become enamored with your own prayer. Because I've actually seen before where some of the folks, they can't get back up. No, really. You see, some of our older members, you've got to respect them. 
And you know, the Bible says, Jesus says it was the Pharisees that were hypocrites that loved to pray long prayers so they could be seen of men. You start timing. I just was curious one time. I began to time the prayers in the Bible. Lord's Prayer, less than 30 seconds. Um, you know, some people think prayer should be heartfelt. God doesn't ever give you credit because you prayed long. He gives you credit because you prayed well. Any of you ever tell a musician after some performance, that was really great, it was so long. <laughs> Does anyone commend them for how long they played? You commend them for how well they played. And so there's no virtue in long prayers. Private prayer should be long. Public prayer should be to the point and brief. Uh, think about what you're going to say, cover the main points, and then say amen. Uh, because I think some people sometimes try to impress everyone with how pious they are by these long prayers. And, and it's tedious. I remember one time Dwight Moody was uh, doing an evangelistic meeting. He'd been trying to get this businessman to come, and he had stayed away from church for years. And, and uh, he finally saw he came in. It was just as one of the men on the platform was uh, going to pray. And, and knelt down, and he's praying, and he's praying, and praying, and Dwight Moody kind of opens his eyes. He's looking at his friend. He's kind of looking around. He's getting restless, and he's getting ready to get up. And he knew his friend was just not going to stand for this. And so finally, uh, Dwight Moody stood up, and he said, while our brother finishes his beautiful prayer, let's stand and sing this song. And <laughs> so, really. And uh, he was a smart evangelist. <laughs> because you can't torture everybody to accommodate one person that doesn't have common sense. And so, you know, in corporate worship, it should be heartfelt, it should be to the point, and that's also true with prayer. But I just was really talking about uh, kneeling in prayer and when that's appropriate. Sometimes you might be praying while you drive. And if you're sincere, I mean, any of you started sliding on a road and you said, Lord, help me? Short prayer, heartfelt. And uh, God answered your prayer. They, uh, who is it? Peter, he prayed while swimming. Or trying to swim. <laughs> Lord save me. And so you, you can pray in all kinds of postures, but you want to be reverent when you do it. Tell you what, um, I got some other things here I'll, I'll try and bring up a little bit later. Why don't we go to a, a story here in the Bible while we're talking about this? We got about another 20 minutes. Turn with me to Exodus 32. I talked about uh, this chapter a little bit. Exodus 32. Because I think it describes where we are right now as a people. Now when the people saw, verse 1, that Moses delayed coming down from the mountain, that the people gathered together to Aaron and they said to him, Come, make us gods that shall go before us. For as this Moses, the man who brought us about of the land of Egypt, we don't know what's become of him. While they were waiting, during the time of delay, when they thought the Lord would have come, or they thought Moses would have come. See, Moses went up the mountain, didn't tell him exactly when he's coming down, did he? Because he said, when I'm ready, I'll come back. When he had what God wanted him to have. They got tired of waiting, and they started to compromise. Come, make us gods that shall go before us. As for this Moses, the man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we don't know what's become of him. Remember Jesus said, If that evil servant says in his heart, My Lord delays his coming and begins to eat and drink with the drunken. In other words, he begins to fellowship with the world. 
and smite his fellow servants, the ones who are still faithful, he takes it out on them, begins to persecute them. And Aaron said to them, Break off the golden earrings that are in the ears of your wives, your sons, and your daughters. Well, I thought that's interesting. You know, 15 years ago, if you had preached this sermon, you would have had to talk about, well, 20 years ago, you would have had to talk about other churches. 15 years ago, you could have only talked about the daughters. Now you can talk about the sons and the daughters. And uh, they managed to collect enough during just getting their bodily jewelry to make a little golden calf. And I've often thought that today, if you took up that offering in a typical church, you could make a full buffalo <laughs> from what you could get. Uh, is it just me, or do you see it? Oh, God doesn't want us hanging all that stuff on our bodies. Uh, your body's the temple of the Holy Spirit. The gold's on the inside. It says, let it be the inward adorning. And it's just amazing to me. You know, when we do evangelism, the new people that we baptize, they usually don't have the problem. You know who we have the problem with? Ones who were raised in the church that are making all these lame excuses for dressing like the world. And I'm not trying to condemn anybody here, but I just believe Bible Christians shouldn't wear jewelry. Let it not be the outward adorning, the wearing of gold and uh, pearls and costly array. And a lot of evangelists got in trouble a few years ago because they were so flamboyant and ostentatious in their dress, among other things. Someone even wrote a song, Would Jesus Wear a Rolex? <laughs> to, to make fun of the, the, the hypocrisy that the world sees. Uh, if ever there was a time when we ought to have a simplicity about us and a purity about us, and you know, once you might say, oh, Pastor Doug, you know, all right, well, you know, my earrings aren't very big. And I just wear a little bit. And uh, so what's wrong with a little bit? We're to worship God with our bodies. Your body's a temple of the Holy Spirit. We're to worship God by taking care of our bodies on the inside. What did it mean to the Jews if you brought a pig into the temple? If you brought an unclean animal into the temple, that was an abomination. Well, we ought to be careful what we're putting in our temples, and we ought to be careful also what goes on the temple. Your body is to be a temple of God. It's to be holy. And uh, there was the marble on the outside, and the gold was on the inside. Uh, but people will often say, well, just a little bit. Let me, let me share something with you that... Uh, I used to pastor a church in New Mexico of Navajo Indians. And uh, I don't know any way to say this except to say it, but uh, if you can have a race of people that is born with a predisposition towards alcoholism, they are. Um, where you might have one out of seven across the board in the general population that have a disposition towards alcoholism, among the Navajos, you have one out of one. Now, I lived on the reservation before I was a Christian. My uncle lived there 40 years, Harry Bachelor. I lived with my uncle on the reservation. All my friends were Navajos. And I remember Harry telling me after 40 years operating a Navajo trading post, he said, I've never met a full-blood Navajo who could open a bottle of alcohol, have a drink, and put it away and be done. He said they always drink until they're out of alcohol or they're out of money or they're passed out. That's what Harry said. So... I come back years later as a Christian. And here I used to drink with the Navajos. I was a terrible example. But then I come back later as a missionary. And I know what the problem is. And 
I hear these Christians saying, well, Pastor Doug, you know, a little bit of wine. I'm not an alcoholic. I drink wine once a week with my Sunday dinner. And, you know, what, what's wrong with that? Jesus turned the water into wine. And they got all these excuses. And by the way, he made grape juice. And, uh, and I thought, well, what if I took that approach with my church? If I told my Navajo church members, Pastor Doug, I don't think you should drink, and I only drink one glass a week. I might be able to control it. I might be modest and temperate and use all those arguments. I'm not justifying that. I'm saying, let's suppose that I drink one glass of wine a week. As long as the church members can point to me and say, he drinks one glass of wine a week, they can still say, he drinks. And though I might be able to control it, they can't. And the Bible says, Paul says, if you really love your brother, don't do anything that's going to make your brother stumble, especially if you don't need to. Now, if someone's going to stumble because I eat celery, well, that's their problem. I'm going to keep eating celery. You know what I'm saying? But I, I might need celery. You don't need to wear jewelry. Nobody's going to get before the Lord in the judgment day, and God's going to say, you know, I'd really like to uh, let you in, but I can't. Why not, Lord? You didn't wear enough jewelry. If you'd worn a little more, I'd let you in. That's not, you don't need it. He's not going to say you didn't drink enough alcohol. There's some things, or smoke enough cigarettes, there's some things you just don't need. And that's one of them, friends. You might not have a problem, but you know, some people are very insecure about themselves. They don't feel good about the way they look, and they try to somehow compensate by hanging valuables all over themselves to try to make themselves feel more valuable. You got all different kinds of addictions that people struggle with, and you can open the door that much for them with something small, so they can control it. Now, I realize that you may not agree with what I'm saying, but it's American, you have every right to be wrong. So, <laughs> I'm gonna say it anyway. That was sort of arrogant, I'm sorry. Well, I wanna go back to my story in Exodus. So, they, they took their, um, their gold off their ears, and he received the gold from their hand, verse four, Exodus 32, and he fashioned it with an engraving tool, and he made a molded calf. Why a person would make a cow and want to worship it is still, I've never understood that. And this may be where you get the idea of holy cow. <laughs> then they said, this is your God, O Israel. What an insult to the Lord to liken God to a cow. Uh, you know, an eagle, lion, a cow. This is your God, O Israel who brought you out of the land of Egypt. So when Aaron saw it, he built an altar before it. Well, that's good. And Aaron made a proclamation and said, tomorrow's a feast to the Lord. Are they going to have a holy day? Then they rose early on the next day. Well, by the way, he created a feast day. He changed the day of worship to a day that God had never assigned. Is that going to happen in the last days? They claimed to be worshiping the God that brought them out of Egypt, but they weren't. They rose early on the next day. They offered burnt offerings, well, made sacrifices. They gave. They brought peace offerings. That's all good. But they're doing it to the wrong God, the wrong day, the wrong way. They sat down to eat and drink. They had a potluck. And then they rose up to play. Now, that word to play, well, you read on a little further and it says they were dancing. Now, listen to what God says to Moses. Verse 7, 
get you down, for the people you brought out of the land of Egypt have corrupted themselves. They've turned aside quickly out of the way that I commanded them. They've made themselves a molded calf and worshipped it right after God said, Don't make images. And the Lord said, I've seen this people, verse 9, it's a stiff-necked people. Now let me alone, that my wrath might burn hot against them. I'll consume them and I'll make a nation of you. This is another great act of worship. You know, ultimately in this story, Moses says, take my name out of your book, but spare your people. You know, one of the greatest acts of worship is when you're willing to say, whether or not I'm saved, your glory and your name is more important. You see, real worship points away from yourself. All of our lives are sort of like compass, compasses, and we've got a needle, and there's this power that makes the needle point in a certain direction. And we were originally designed to point outward towards God. And that's where we find our greatest satisfaction. Great commandment is to love the Lord, love your neighbor as yourself. First God, then others, then you. Someone said it's like the acronym JOY. Jesus, others, you. That's the equation for happiness. The devil flips the compass so that it always points south towards self. We automatically think about self. We become our own God, which is the same thing as worshiping the devil. And all of our decisions are based on what will this mean for me, what's in it for me. You really can experience true worship if you get to the place of Paul and Moses where you say, whether or not I'm saved is not the issue, Lord. I mean, you really have to have a deep relationship with the Lord when you can pray sincerely, Lord, save your people, even if I'm lost. Take my name out of your book, but what are they going to think of your name, God? And it was totally selfless. That's when you arrive, when your worship is not about what's in it for me. Now, what's happening in churches today? You ever heard of prosperity preaching? Oh, boy, I tell you, that's the bullseye of false worship. Uh, a lot of these dear people mixed up in it, but these charismatic churches that are basically saying, if you've got enough faith, God's going to make you healthy, wealthy, and wise. And if you, don't, if you get sick, it's because you didn't have enough faith. And if you don't have money, you don't have enough faith. And the way you get money is you send it to our ministry, plant a seed, they call it. Make a faith offering to our ministry and God's going to open the windows of heaven for you. I have heard evangelists, I've gone to tent meetings in uh, different parts of America where I heard some of these prosperity preachers and they were just telling people point blank, you come up to the front, you plant your seed, you make your offering to the Lord, which meant to them. You need a new pickup truck? Today is your day. You're going to get your miracle, but you've got to step out in faith. And you have somebody, you're losing your house. You need to make an offering to the Lord, and God's going to open the windows. And they manipulate these people with fear and greed. And it's all about what's in it for me. So you've got to be real careful when uh, sometimes, you know, we're even tempted to uh, fall for that. And they take some true principles. God does open the windows of heaven when we're faithful and tithe, but it may not always pour out money. Sometimes he opens the windows of heaven and who knows how he might bless you with an abundance. It happens a lot of different ways. So I want to jump down here to verse 15. Exodus 32, 15. And Moses turned and he went down the mountain and the two tables of the testimony were in his hand. And the tablets were written on both sides, on the one side and on the other they were written. Now the tablets were the work of God, and the writing was the writing of God, engraved on the tablets. And when Joshua heard the noise of the people as they shouted, he said to Moses, there is the noise of war in the camp. 
Well, there's a clue for you. If the worship service starts sounding a little bit like a war, <laughs> something's wrong. There's the noise of war in the camp. And listen to what Moses said. And this is a, a very important statement. I've got it underlined in my Bible. You might want to do the same. He said, it is not the voice of those who shout in victory, nor is it the voice of those who cry out in defeat. But it's the voice of those who sing that I hear. And they're not, obviously, the right kinds of songs. Now, one of the problems with the church in the last days, he said, I would that you were hot or cold, but because you're lukewarm, I will spew thee out of my mouth. God is not saying, I wish that you were saved or lost. He would never say, I wish you were lost. Hot means you're filled with the Spirit, you're on fire, you're working for the Lord. Cold means you realize your weakness, you're humbling yourself before the Lord, you're seeking after the Spirit. One is zeal, working for God, on fire. The other is a spirit of humiliation, seeking after God, wanting revival. God can work with either of those conditions. Both conditions realize their need of God. One is the shout of victory. See, Moses said it's not those who shout for victory. The other is those who cry because of defeat. That's cold. Can God do something with you if you're like Peter, you go out and you weep bitterly because you failed God? He said, I wish you were that way. If you knew your weakness, if you knew how you've fallen, I can work with that. Or if you're shouting for victory and praising me and you're out conquering for Christ, I can work with that. But if you're singing while you're lost and you're indifferent and lukewarm, and you're whistling on your way to destruction, he said, I can spew you out of my mouth. These are two extremes that, uh, oh, I, well, I didn't mean to say it that way. These two things, yeah, well, really, these two opposites, victory, hot, weeping because of defeat, cold, that'd be good. But it's the, we will substitute genuine worship for an exuberant uh, ceremony. There's a quote here. I want to see if I can find this real quick of somebody who sort of summed this up. In many churches around the world, the concept of worship has been redefined and narrowed to mean the time when Christians come together to sing songs, raise their hands, dance around, get all excited about the Lord together in church, for most of our younger postmodernist relativist generation, the concept of worship has become a thing you do once or twice a week to absolve yourself of guilt. The more you can work yourself up into a state of bliss and feeling like you're really achieving a state of worship by letting yourself go in the music, in the rhythm, in the worship time, the more you can justify what you're doing the rest of the week when you're not worshiping God. This worship then becomes an excuse and a justification process whereby Christians can rid themselves of the guilt of not obeying the Lord with their lives. Do you catch that? Oh, by the way, that's not written by Seventh-day Adventists. We're not the only ones that realize something's wrong with what's happening in the church. A lot of churches work themselves into a frenzy, an ecstasy of feeling during this church service. Uh, they'll beat the drums and they keep on, uh, you know, building until we're just all worked up and we think that, oh, that we, well, we really worshiped and that, that must mean I'm absolved of my guilt and I've been justified. And they get this illusion that they worship God and they're basically free to disobey another week. They come back and they, they go through sort of this 
Catholic idea. If you uh, say Hail Mary ten times, repeat something ten times, and you're forgiven again. Just work, your, you know, count your beads, and you're forgiven again. And you can go out and... And uh, that's not what real worship is. Real worship is something, for one thing, that happens all week long. You worship God with your life. And what is... How does God say that he wants us to worship him? You know, in John, he told the woman at the well, those that worship me will worship me in spirit and in truth. We worship him by following the truth. Without that, we can't do it. Back to our story here. So it was, verse 19, as soon as he came near the camp, is Jesus going to come? That he saw the calf and the dancing, Moses' anger became hot. And he cast the tablets out of his hand, and he broke them at the foot of the mountain. And he took the calf, which they had made, and he burned it in the fire. When Jesus comes, is he going to come and burn the works of men's hands? Is there going to be the wrath of the Lamb against those who have led others astray through false worship? And they burned it in the fire, and he ground it to powder, and he scattered it on the water, and he made the children of Israel drink it. We're going to all taste of our own doings. And Moses said to Aaron, what did this people do to you? How did they torture you that you have brought so great a sin upon them? And Aaron, he's, of course, he's scared to death. He says, don't let the anger of my Lord become hot. You know the people, they're set on evil. For they said, Make us gods that shall go before us. For as is Moses, this man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we don't know what hap what's happened to him. And I, I always thought it was interesting. So uh, he said, So they broke off their earrings, and I cast it in the fire, and this calf came out. <laughs> it's like, you know, they threw all the gold in the fire, and out popped this calf all by itself, trying to uh, absolve himself. And it goes off on, of course, it says... Uh, Nobody put on his ornaments. Later, he says, break off your ornaments so I can know what I shall do with you. And it said that he had made the people naked. Uh, where is that verse? Yeah. Verse 25, and Moses saw the people were unrestrained naked, for Aaron had not restrained them to their shame among their enemies. So this is sort of a picture in summary of what I see happening to our church, not just our church, many churches. You know, I drive down the street, you'll see Presbyterian churches used to have very traditional worship service. And they'll say, we're offering traditional worship and we're offering youth contemporary worship. Well, you don't have to go and you know what that means. What's going to be one of the most uh, distinguishing differences between those two worships? It's going to be the music. We're going to talk about that in our next session. But I think it's also interesting, don't forget the point, that in the delay of waiting for Moses to come back, the people became restless. And they said, let's, maybe we were wrong. You know, maybe we misunderstood what God was saying. The devil will get you to start questioning how he's led you in the past. Uh, maybe we misunderstood what Moses was telling us. After all, he's been gone for a while now. Some people say, well, you know, Ellen White, well, she probably had a role, but it's been a while, and, and is it really relevant anymore? And we start to have doubts, and the devil will get us to second-guess our leading during this time of waiting. And so we start to grope about us and say, well, what are the other nations doing? How do they worship? 
we got to worship something and we're not sure what we're doing anymore. And so automatically we start looking to the right and to the left instead of looking up. And we begin to mimic what the nations around us are doing. And all the nations around them back then were involved in idolatry and bingo, right away they start getting involved in idolatry. And they were involved in these uh, paganistic worship styles that were all about and so, yeah, they, they worshipped and they, they offered a sacrifice. Then they ate and drank. They had a potluck. Can I talk about that for a moment? You know, it always struck me as interesting that they don't do it anymore, but years ago, if there was someone in the church and, and they were guilty of adultery um, or, you know, immoral behavior before marriage or something like that, churches actually used to get together, they'd consider this person's name, they'd say, you know, this person has uh, violated the commandments, they've been controlled by the flesh instead of the spirit, and uh, we need to disfellowship them for this so that it sets an example for others of the holiness of what it means to be a member. Membership does have its privileges. Membership does mean something. Any of you remember those days? I don't know, so anyone old here remember that? You're considered unloving if you do that now. But I've always wondered what it would be like if you had a church board meeting and someone said, you know, we need to consider the name of uh, uh, Brother Smith here. And what's the problem? Well, Brother Smith is, uh, he's a glutton. You ought to see him at potluck. Uh, he just, you know, doesn't think about anyone else and he piles three times more on his plate than the stomach's designed to hold. And, and he does it week after week. And, you know, we prayed for him and... We need to drop his name. <laughs> now you're laughing, but think about it. When a person, and I'm not saying they're the same thing, don't misunderstand, but I just want you to think. When a person is overcome with sexual temptation, what that is is the lust of the flesh. Right? When a person is a glutton, what is that? Well, you could say it's the lust of the eyes and the lust of the flesh. But that could be with sex, too. I mean, the principles at the basis are the same, but how many times do you see folks that go to, you know, a potluck, seventh-day, because it's vegetarian, we think that we can somehow, it's sanctified gluttony. <laughs> right? And people will, and they'll say, oh, man, I can't get up, I ate so much, and they'll joke about it. But is that anything to joke about? You know, we're... They were worshiped and they sat down to eat and drink and they rose up to play. And they got carried away and probably from all of that stuff fermenting in their stomachs, they were drunk. Oh, well, now I'm getting carried away myself. But I think you understand the principle of what I'm saying. There's a lot of things we do. Jesus said, there's that which is highly esteemed among man, but it's an abomination to God. And I think that the Lord wants us to be consistent and to raise the standard of holiness and what real worship is, to worship Him in our minds, in our spirits, in our bodies, in our lives, in everything we do. Uh, let all that has breath worship the Lord. And so this is really a call. We're going to take a break here in a moment. But this is really a call for us to all be consistent in worship. In our next presentation, we'll be talking a little bit about uh, Daniel chapter 3, uh, the golden image, talk a little bit about music and some of those aspects of worship. But... Uh, why don't we just stand for a moment, let's have a prayer, and we'll tie this session off.
Father in heaven, as we uh, prepare to just take a break now in we've considered these important truths of worship, uh, we pray that again your spirit will be with us and uh, help us to take the things that we've learned, bring them to heart, and that there can be a revival among your people in these principles. I pray that we'll apply them first to our lives and then that by our word and example they can be introduced into our churches, that when you come, your people will be worshiping you in a way that honors you. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. This media was produced by Audioverse for GYC, Generation of Youth for Christ. If you would like to learn more about GYC, please visit www.gycweb.org. Or if you would like to listen to more free online sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.